Pressure is revelatory. You can learn a lot about a guy by watching how he responds to pressure. In the American Revolutionary War, a few significant figures coveted General George Washington's position as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. Most notable among these was General Charles Lee, whose military experience actually dwarfed General Washington's. He was sharp-witted and sharp-tongued and was, at least on paper, much more qualified to lead the Patriots to victory. In fact, Lee wasn't chosen over Washington in part because he wanted to collect a paycheck and Washington was willing to work without pay. So Lee was placed as second in command. Charles Lee was haughty. He was overconfident in his own military genius and undermined Washington's influence at every turn. His distrust of Washington's leadership was evident in every council meeting and loomed behind every decision. So the war efforts were reaching a turning point when Washington received word that the bulk of the British forces were relocating from the more vulnerable occupation of Philadelphia to a safer, more secure occupation of New York. This is a transport of thousands of soldiers and an immeasurable wealth of supplies that would be for a short time vulnerable while traversing the American countryside. So Washington gathered his council and proposed a full-scale assault against the Redcoats. Immediately, Lee resisted, claiming that any offensive against a British force this size was ridiculous and foolhardy. Washington disagreed and commanded, despite Lee's counsel, that the bulk of his forces fall upon the rear of the supply line while a force of 5,000 patriots would cut off the advance of the troop movement. You know, even though he initially refused to participate in the assault at all, Lee demanded to command the initial force because he was hungry for glory. So when Washington and his men arrived, Lee's men were actually running in the opposite direction in retreat, terrified of the advancing British force. The force of 5,000 of Americans' finest were abandoning their position and fleeing in fear. So when Washington met Lee on the battlefield, who was, by the way, with his soldiers retreating, he immediately relieved him of command, and Washington turned his steed and rode before the retreating men, shouting, Stand fast, my boys, and receive your enemy. The southern troops are advancing to support you. While Lee fled in terror, Washington rallied the fleeing soldiers and led them into battle and brought fury and fire upon the redcoat forces until the day was spent. This was the Battle of Monmouth, and it changed the course of the American Revolution. Now the sun beat down that day over 100 degrees. That's pressure. The mighty military force, the mightiest military force in the world, 
loomed on the horizon. And that's pressure. An untested force of American colonists facing near certain death. That's pressure. And the reason I'm telling you this story is to illustrate that pressure can work to strip away the facade that we work so hard to construct and to expose to us to expose us for who we really are. The pressure at the Battle of Monmouth was revelatory. For General Charles Lee, the pressure exposed a heart of cowardice, a heart hungry for glory but terrified of death. For General George Washington, the pressure at Monmouth revealed unshakable conviction and fiery courage and unparalleled leadership. Shifting gears a bit, it took my wife and I five years to realize that 99% of our arguments began when one of us was tired or hungry. And it isn't because physical fatigue or hunger created selfishness or malice or envy in our hearts. It's because malice was there and selfishness was there and envy was there. It just takes pressure to draw those things out because pressure is revelatory. Now we're going to see this play out in our passage this morning. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 29. I want you to read with me together. This is a long passage, but I I promise it will be worth it. 1 Samuel 29. Hold up your Bibles when you're there. Awesome. Let's read together. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go up, he shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in this campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now? Then am I not go out and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up to battle with us. Now then, rise early in the morning with your servants, with the servants of your lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So, men set, so David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. 
Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and his 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the book Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Nebeg of the Carathites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came back to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them. And David came near to the people. As David uh, came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we had recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? 
For as his, as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made, a, he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of, of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jeter, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Esthema, in Rakal, in the cities of Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Okay, let's get started. So this story is divided into two chapters. But chapter markers in the Bible aren't typically a huge help. They were added much, much later. And in this case, they're not helpful at all because this is actually one long story. Chapter 29 operates as a preface to chapter 30. Chapter 29 answers all of the important questions we ask about the action in chapter 30. And it connects the story we're we're reading to the story we've read uh, in the past in a truly fascinating way. So I think the best way, the simplest way to divide this passage is by scene. And there are five scenes in this passage. We're going to address them one by one. First, the battlefield. Second, the burning village. Third, the chase. Fourth, the return. And then fifth, the celebration. Okay, so we're going to take each in turn. First, the battlefield. So this story opens on the same battlefield. And this is an important thing to take note of. This opens on the same battlefield that has haunted the final scenes of Saul's life. Saul's mighty enemy, the Philistines have risen against the people of Israel in a big way. And a terrifying army looms on the horizon. So terrifying, in fact, that Saul risks his life to flee beyond the boundaries of Israel in order to seek the counsel of a pagan medium. Do you remember this? He's so desperate for supernatural counsel that he violates the covenant and condemns himself and his sons and his people to ruin It's a testimony not only of the might of the Philistine force, but it's also a testimony of the foolishness of the cursed king of Israel. Now, I love what the author is doing here. Because he begins this story by staging the Philistines at Aphek, which is the supply grounds for their military assault against Israel. At the same time, Saul and his forces are staging at Jezreel. And what this means is that this story begins a few days prior to Saul's story in chapter 28. The author means for us to understand that David and his men were sent home from the battlefield while Saul and his men are approaching the battlefield. In other words, the two stories of Saul seeking a medium and of David um, chasing after this, this Amalekite these Amalekite raiders, these two stories are happening at the same time. As David and his men are sent from battle, Saul and his men approach the front lines. So you should think about this battlefield in terms of two kings. Saul, the broken, cursed king of Israel, faces 
unspeakable losses. And David, the true coming king of Israel, also faces unspeakable losses. Saul is pacing toward a terrifying enemy knowingly, while David is pacing toward a terrifying enemy unknowingly. There's also a heavy tone of irony in this first scene. Because David is sent away from the Philistines because the Philistines suspect that he will rise in defense of the people of Israel. Now they rightly identify that David's driving passion is to see the people of God liberated from their enemies. Meanwhile, Saul is steadily working against the people of Israel by turning from God, by abandoning the covenant. He curses the people of Israel and condemns them to death on this battlefield. So what's ironic is the suspected motives of David ought to have been the true motives of Saul, but they weren't. Saul doesn't care about the people of Israel. Saul has abandoned the people and become a curse to them. There's another funny moment here. Achish, the king of Gath, of the Philistines, pulls David aside apologetically. And listen to his words. As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out with me in this campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Literally, everything he says here is the opposite of the truth. He swears by the Lord, mind you, that David has been honest from the outset, and he hasn't. And he declares that the right thing to do for the Philistines would be to allow David to fight against his people, which is totally off. And he says that he's detected nothing wrong about David from the day he arrived in Gath. In other words, he's blind. David himself is cunning, crafty, strategic, while Achish, the king of the nations, is blind as a bat. Now, what's most fascinating about David's relationship to Achish is how remarkably similar it is to David's relationship to Saul. In both cases, he's stationed as the chief bodyguard. In both cases, he's sent away. And in both cases, David is superior. I think we're supposed to understand that he is the better king. So, the battlefield scene ends when David and his men begin a long march back to Ziklag, the burning village. What they find here incites overwhelming despair. Can you imagine arriving home after a day's journey to find smoldering ruin? No one remains, only smoke and ashes. Their sons, their daughters, their wives, their livelihoods, their possessions, everything is gone. Few, few in our society have known this suffering. Unimaginable loss in a moment. When the men arrive, they weep until there isn't strength left in their bodies to weep anymore. They imagine that all is lost. They imagine that everything they've worked toward is futile. They imagine only sorrow for their remaining days. They weep and they despair and they turn on David in bitterness and wrath. This is surely David's darkest hour. 
All of those whom He has sheltered. All of those who have committed themselves to His coming kingdom. All of those He's fought alongside weep in sober desperation and begin to speak of taking His life. Remember, David too had lost everything. David too had lost his family, his possessions, and his hopes were crumbling. This sort of pressure is unparalleled. And what does David do, faced with total destruction, faced with the loss of all that he loves, faced with the betrayal of his closest friends? What does David do in the midst of this pressure? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's what he did. When all was lost, David sought strength in the Lord. Despite overwhelming suffering, he sought strength in the Lord his God. Now you must, because the way of this story started, you must remember the timeline. Remember that at this moment, Saul, as the red dusk settles, Saul is stripping off his royal robes and fleeing the boundaries of Israel to seek counsel from the wicked. Just at this moment, both kings have lost everything. Just at this moment, both kings face near certain death. Saul abandons the covenant. He breaks faith with God and with the people of Israel. And he pursues wicked means for even the distant promise of safety. Not David. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Look, that contrast, that juxtaposition is the point of this passage. What makes David the better man? What makes David the man after God's heart? Both professed faith in the God of Israel. Both attended worship feasts. Both sacrificed by the priests. Both sought counsel from the prophets. What makes David the man after God's heart? When the pressure mounts and all is surely lost, David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. That's the sort of king we need. We need a king who strengthens himself in the Lord his God while rescuing God's people. We need a king who presses on in faith despite suffering, who steals his strength and looks to the joy set before him. We need a king characterized by prayer in moments of intense suffering. That's the kind of king we need. And that is the point of this passage. But do you want to know what I think is truly magical about this story? Everything that follows is a foreshadow of what awaits those who do likewise. Follow the king after God's heart and all that you've lost will be restored. Amen? I'm getting ahead of myself. So David, who's facing overwhelming despair, a mutinous force, and the loss of all that he loves turns to God for strength. He takes a moment to weep, and then the fiery eyes of the king seek the priest because it's time to go to war. You should read those words, bring me the ephod. You should read these words with fire behind them. Because this is wrath embodied. 
David is, remember, above all things, David is a warrior. And above all things, he seeks the good of his people. So when David seeks the Lord his God and asks for permission to seek out those who have stolen the joy of his people, he does so in the fullness of the Spirit who is holy and by the might of the God who is strong. The anointed rises to protect his people. The wrath and might of God manifest in the strong king's arm, mighty to save. And listen to God's words. Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. Step back from the situation of this passage for a moment and trace the shadow to the coming king. The promised Messiah, the Son of God, approaches the Father. Go, he says, you shall surely rescue. What a lovely foreshadow of the work of the coming King and the God who commissions him. Remember Saul, considering the distance that David and his men traveled, David's prayers must have been offered around the same time that Saul was swearing against the Lord and demanding to see Samuel's spirit. Throughout this story, we're given a vision of the truly fundamental distinction between Saul and David because pressure is revelatory. So the chase... As soon as God blesses their mission, David and his warriors ride in fury. But remember, I can't even imagine this. They've now been marching day and night and spent themselves weeping over their lost ones. These men are exhausted. And a third of their number literally don't have the physical strength to continue for the entire journey. So David allows them to remain with the supplies and the remaining 400 speed in pursuit. I want you to imagine what it must have felt like chasing desperately after the wicked men who have stolen your wife, your child, who have burned your home and stolen all that you love. Imagine the immediacy they must have felt. Imagine the pressure building as you wonder whether your loved ones are safe. And yet, in the midst of a most desperate chase, David pauses to serve the suffering. An Egyptian, left for dead, weak and thirsty, starving to death in the wilderness. David gives him bread to eat and water to drink, a cake of figs and a cluster of raisins. Knowing that this man may very well have lit the match that burned down his village... David exhibits mercy toward the suffering. Perhaps he remembered these words from the law. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Perhaps David was responding in obedience to care for the suffering sojourner. Knowing that he too was a sojourner in a foreign land. In either case... In the midst of unimaginable suffering, David cares for those in need. This reminds me of Jesus, who from the cross, mind you, gives comfort to a dying thief 
and arranges care for his widowed mother. The care given to the dying Egyptian yields dividends because David and his men soon learn that this is an Egyptian who was a servant to one of the raiders and has insider information related to their whereabouts. After promising his safety, they set off again, this time with a guide. All the building fury of David and his men, elite warriors now seasoned in battle, fell upon the men who burned their village. David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. Goodness. Over the course of a full day, the Amalekites were totally defeated. When David arrived, these men were drinking and dancing, swimming in riches. Within a day, all was lost to them, and only 400 thieves escaped. A reminder that the judgment of God awaits the wicked swift and final. Miraculously, nothing was missing. Nothing, great or small. Every son and daughter and wife, their flocks and possessions, all that they'd lost was restored to them on that day. And more. The raiders had hit Ziklag as the final stop in a long series of raids. When David and his men declared victory over this Amalekite horde, they inherited the spoils of an extraordinarily profitable conquest. David and his men were now swimming in wealth. And the men who were ready to stone him now bow in honor, declaring, this is David's spoil. And so they return. Another obstacle, though, presents itself on the return from combat. If we hadn't suspected that some of David's men were themselves scoundrels, we do now. Perhaps the same men who suggested that David be stoned in Ziklag now refused to surrender the spoils of war to those who were too exhausted to continue on the chase. Remember that these men have been traveling at, ba- at breakneck speed, exhausting themselves in a chase, and then fought with all their might for over 24 hours. They risked their lives to save their own And now they return to men who have enjoyed several days of rest. There's pressure. A division in his troops threatens to compromise this day of celebration. That's pressure. The trials haven't altogether ceased, apparently, because as these men ride home with their loved ones and extraordinary wealth, a conflict arises among his troops when they encounter those 200 soldiers who couldn't continue in this chase because of their exhaustion, a number of the victors suggest that they shouldn't share the spoils of war. Now, for me, this is an important connection. Because we were told that when David first fled to the pagan wilderness, many of the lowest order of people were drawn to him. Bitter in heart, indebted, social outcasts. From the outset, David's men were the least of these, those who had failed society's tests. And that's basically all the information we're given about the nature and characters of David's mighty mighty men for now. But as the story progresses, much later on, we hear brilliant stories of might and valor. 
That week we actually stole glimpses from much later in this story when David's men are revered for their bravery and their exploits are legendary. This passage is between that passage and that passage. The reason I'm glad this story is here because it teaches us that David's men who were drawn to him as bitter social outcasts did not miraculously evolve into soldiers of virtue overnight. The text says all the wicked and worthless fellows among them. Those are strong words and they're true words. Because this is now two major divisions within David's forces in less than 48 hours, both driven by a misguided demand for justice. But David exhibits the justice of God. Yet again, in the midst of trial, David's character shines bright. And the theme of this passage swells brightly. This is the coming king, a king after God's own heart. See, at every moment, David's response to suffering, to fear, to trial, has become a brilliant display of his virtue. At the burning village, when David responds to mutiny in prayer, the pressure was revelatory. Truly, this is the faithful king. In pursuit of his enemies, when David encounters a dying man, the pressure was revelatory. Truly, this is a merciful king. At the raiders' camp, when David fought with all his strength to defend his people, truly, this is a king mighty to save. And this display is unfolding at precisely the same moment that Saul, the king like the nations, is selling out his people and cursing his throne. The story draws to a close when David and his men arrive in Ziklag all of their possessions and families intact. All of the overwhelming wealth of this conquest has been given to David, who might have merely settled down and enjoyed an early retirement. But that's not the way of the coming king. David sends gifts to all the elders of Judah. He says, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. This is a final nail in Saul's coffin. The true king of Israel is granted victory by the mercy of God, fights valiantly by the might of God, and gives generously to the people of God. Not Saul. Saul curses the people by rejecting the covenant, and he leads them to slaughter. So judge for yourself. Who is the worthy king? Which king is best? Which king is worthy of allegiance? Which king will lead the people in mercy, generosity, and justice? This story, like all of the stories in Samuel, are meant to force you to draw comparisons. David was faithful. Saul was faithless. David was courageous. Saul was a coward. David was kind. Saul was ruthless. David was mighty, Saul was weak. David was just, Saul was wicked. Saul was impatient, David waited on God. Saul sought mediums, David sought God. 
Saul broke the covenant. David honored the covenant. Saul trembled in fear. David rallied in hope. When the pressure mounted, fear, suffering, pain, exhaustion, when the pressure mounted, the true character of these two kings were were on display. Guys, look at Saul. This is what the world's kings are like. The end of Saul is a grim reminder that the nations of this world have nothing to offer you. If you set your hope in this world, your end will be like his. Will you declare allegiance to a king like this? Will you set your hope in a kingdom like his? I want to be precise here because I make broad statements like that all the time, but I rarely stop to reflect. You are tempted daily to work toward, to hope in, to bet on this present kingdom. It is the nature of this kingdom, always seeking your affection, always seeking your total allegiance. And you must decide every day that you are a temporary resident Christian or your affection for this kingdom will swell and overrule your hope in Christ's kingdom. You will have opportunity to work too many hours on the promise of great wealth. Though it means perhaps sacrificing those things which the scriptures teach are more important Don't do it. That king isn't worthy. You will have opportunity to spend all your money on you, on your family, on your American dream, though you've been called to sacrificial generosity. Don't do it. That king is not worthy. You will have opportunity to indulge your passions. People will flirt with you. Netflix will tell you that it's 98% sure that you're going to love this movie. Ads will promise instant sexual gratification without consequence. Don't do it. That king isn't worthy. And every day you will have opportunity to neglect your call to die. It's easier to sleep in than to get up. Talking about Jesus to the kids is awkward. I don't know what to say when I try to pray. I've given enough this month. I'd lose my job if I spoke to him about Jesus. Stop. Stop feeling comfortable in this kingdom. Stop investing in this kingdom. That king is not worthy. Look at David. It's a glimpse of what the coming king of Israel will be like. This is a grim shadow of the overwhelming glory of the coming Christ, who, like David, persevered through suffering. This is a glimpse of the coming Christ, who, like David, strengthened himself in the Lord his God while facing certain death. Look at David. 
This is a picture of the coming Christ who, like David, showed mercy to the hopeless. Watch David save his people. This is a picture of the coming Christ who will declare total victory over the wicked and who will restore all that was lost, even more. Take note of David. See how generously he shares his wealth with his people. This is a foreshadow of the coming kingdom of Christ. He has won the victory and he will rescue his people. And they will share in his unimaginable wealth forever and ever. Amen. Christ, the son of David, is calling you to battle. He will lead you faithfully. He will protect you perfectly. He will restore all that you've lost. And he will share his unimaginable wealth. He will. Place your trust in him. Because he's the only king who's worthy. Now let's celebrate this king at the table. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.